Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in Jonah and Micah. Now, from here on out, with the rest of Come, Follow Me, we're in what are called the minor prophets. They're not minor because they don't matter. They're minor because their writings are not as long as Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah. Now, the setting for Jonah is going to be about the 9th century BC, somewhere in the time period between 800 and 750 BC, somewhere in there. And that's very critical for you guys to understand because the bully on the block is Assyria in that time period. It's not Babylon. It's not Egypt. The bully on the block is Assyria. So that's essential to understand for studying Jonah. Absolutely. That's the setting. And with Micah, we're kind of in that same time frame. Micah is a contemporary with Isaiah. So Micah is right around 730, 720 BC. Now, just know that in these small prophetic books, we're kind of all over the map. So in the second slide, we actually put a timeline of the Old Testament prophets in a snapshot so you can look on one slide and kind of get your bearings as to where you are. I think it's really helpful, and I want to just give a shout out to Mike Parker for making this slide. It's really good. Yeah. So that being said, let's do a quick overview of the chapters and then look at it as a type and a shadow. Okay. So big picture, Jonah lives in Israel, and he's called to go on a mission to preach repentance to Nineveh. The Lord says that Nineveh is going to be overthrown or overturned or destroyed. And Nineveh is about 500 miles east of Israel. And after he gets this call, Jonah says, okay, and he goes to Joppa, which is modern day Jaffa. And instead of going to Nineveh, he charters a ship and he goes to Tarshish. And we're not really sure where it is, but in the map that we give you, we're going to call that Spain. I think that's a really good assessment. It's far, far away. And so if he's headed to Spain, I mean, basically he's headed 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. And then there's a problem at sea, and eventually he's thrown overboard, and he's swallowed in the belly of a fish. And then at the end of the second chapter, the fish vomits him out because he repents. He prays to the Lord, and then he goes to Nineveh in the third chapter, preaches repentance. Everybody is converted, and then at the end, they're not destroyed. And Jonah's response, I mean, first of all, think about this. You're the most successful missionary in the history of Scripture. Everyone has basically repented. And not only everyone, but like the bad guys, the, right. the, the, the really bad guys that everyone hates. Yeah. You converted a massive city among the bad guys. This is Ammon, Aaron, Omner, and Himni cranked up a thousand notches. Exactly. I mean, these guys are awful. And he says in the final bit of Jonah 4, I wish I was dead. He says, take my life. It's better for me to die than to live. And then the Lord asks a really interesting question at the end of Jonah 4, and it's up for you, the reader, to decide the answer to that question. So really, it's a short book. It's four chapters. But Bryce, wouldn't you say it's rich with symbolism and meaning, and it really helps us to see the Savior? That's right. If you've listened to our podcast for a while, you know that Mike is always talking about four Jewish readings, four ways you can handle the text. The first one is a literal reading. 
The second one is a symbolic reading. And then you can start getting into the, how does it liken unto me? And the fourth one is, okay, how does it relate to my covenants and to the temple and the divine process of coming back to God? So those are kind of the four readings. Now, if you read Jonah as a literal reading, you're going to face some challenges with the text. Things like, how do you survive four days and four nights in the belly of a fish, or the size of Nineveh, or those types of things. But if you look at Jonah symbolically, as Jesus seems to have done, because he quotes Jonah, he seems to acknowledge that it's very symbolic and it symbolizes what he's going to do in the spirit world. So we're going to look at Jonah as a type and a shadow and as a pattern. We're not necessarily going to talk about the literalness of the book of Jonah. For me, the book of Jonah is the very essence of our life here on earth. It's the very essence of mortality. To me, it is one of the most important messages that we need to teach our children and each other, and that is the battle within me. The battle of life is not me against Satan or Jesus against Satan or me against non-believers. Uh, The battle of life is me against that inner part of me, the natural man inside me. And I am enticed by both of those. And the question is, which is going to win out? In 2 Nephi chapter 2, Father Lehi's great discussion about the plan of salvation, it says, man cannot act for himself, save he should be enticed by the one or the other. So part of me naturally loves light. And the other part of me naturally loves the things of the natural man, the animal in me. And so anciently, they would take animals to the temple and lay it on the altar as a reminder to consume the animal inside of us. But then after the Savior's atonement, he commanded in the Book of Mormon, I no longer want you to bring animals to the altar. We are going to end the shedding of blood. Instead, in 3 Nephi chapter 9, verse 20, he says the replacement for that, the great offering we offer the Lord in our day, according to his own words, is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. That's my offering to God. I bring him a broken heart and a contrite spirit. So I've thought a great deal about what that means in my practical everyday life. How do I bring God a broken heart and a contrite spirit? When I was a young man, I helped out at a neighbor's ranch. I had a neighbor who took care of horses. And every once in a while, he would kind of rescue a horse. And I'll never forget one time a very wild horse came in with an injured leg. Now, normally, wild horses are put down because they're just going to keep running on that injured leg, and it's going to make it worse, and they're going to be very injured. But in order for this rancher to help this horse, the horse had to learn to trust the rancher, and that was not natural. And watching that helped me understand what the offering to God is. Because the first thing this rancher did is he put a rope around this horse, and that horse fought against that rope with everything it had. I do not trust you. I do not believe you have my best interest at heart. I am going to live my own life my way. That's what the rope represented, that tight 
rope where he was pulling against the rancher. And I realized that is the natural man inside of me. I don't trust God. That side of me doesn't trust God. I don't believe God has my best interest at heart, and I'm going to fight against him. But in order for that horse to be healed, he had to learn to trust the rancher. And when he did, and only when he did, could the rancher heal that broken leg. And as soon as that leg was healed, he released him. He was free. And I thought so many times that God only wants what is best for me. But part of me doesn't believe that and part of me doesn't trust that. Part of me thinks that I know better for me. And the wrestle we all have to come to in this life is, do you trust that your heavenly father is leading you to the greatest happiness you could receive? That he knows the path to happiness better than you do? Or do you mistrust him and think that you can bring about your greater happiness? There's the wrestle of life. And Jonah is the symbol of this. Bryce, I want to just submit also like a balancing idea to this, that I don't think that following the Lord means we have to sign up to a life of misery. I think sometimes we present the gospel, and when I say we, I mean collectively as a culture. Sometimes we say things like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to drink this gospel drink, and it's going to be awful. But man, one day in the next life, I'm going to be happy. For me, the gospel should be joyful. It should be something that I feel like I'm actually contributing, and it's a good experience. I like that balance, Mike. I think that's important. But understanding that God says to me, look, the things that you naturally run to that you think are going to make you happy are not going to make you happy. The natural man in me resists certain things that God has commanded me to do. And there's an adrenaline rush that comes from being angry and yelling at people or hitting people. And the Lord says, no, that is not going to make you happy. You have to subdue that animal. You cannot let that animal control you. And in the context of this book, Jonah doesn't like the Assyrians. They're really bad. He's to go to his worst enemy. It's like the Nazi Germany of the ancient world. These people were brutal. We put in the slides a, a picture of a tell called Achish, and there are these murals in the king's wall of Assyria where the king brags about doing horrible things to the people of Achish. They impaled them, and they skinned them, and they were just... They were awful. And so imagine this great power, this great political power that you're paying all this tribute to, and they've killed your own friends. And God says, I want you to go save them. Now, we put in the show notes a story about a woman named Corey Ten Boom, who was Christian, who spent much of her life in a concentration camp. And after the war, she survived the concentration camps, and she taught that we need to forgive. She wrote a book called The Hiding Place that really changed me in regards to forgiveness and helped me to kind of recalibrate what I thought about forgiveness. And she writes, 
after her experience at Ravensbrück, she actually went from city to city throughout Europe and begged people to forgive because she saw the divisiveness after the war. I mean, think about this. After World War II, there were a lot of hurt feelings. People had anger towards people of other nationalities, and it was not helpful. And so her message as she went from church to church was that we need to forgive. And at the conclusion of one of her sermons, a man approached her and she writes this, that the man came up to her and said, you mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk. He said, I was a guard there, but since that time I have become a Christian. He explained to me that he had sought God's forgiveness for the cruel things that he had done. And then he extended his hand towards me and he said, will you forgive me? Corey Temboom said, it could not have been many seconds that he stood there with his hand held out, but to me it seemed like it was hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. The message that God forgives has a condition, that we forgive those who've injured us. Help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. Lord, you supply the feeling. Woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. As I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with my whole heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. And that's kind of the message that Jonah is told by the Lord he's to do. He's to go to his worst enemy. It's like the Nazi Germany of the ancient world. And so that really is something that Jonah has to subdue. That's his issue. Like, how can I go to these people that are so horrible and extend God's love to them? And then he goes and says, you guys are going to be destroyed if you don't repent. And they repent and Jonah's upset. And so I really see... Jonah in that situation where he's just like, oh, I'm so mad, Lord. Why did you not destroy them? And the Lord says to him, he doesn't say this. He asks a question that gets you, the reader, to realize that even Jonah has to repent. Jonah has to soften that part of him that wants to be right. He's so intent on holding on to how correct he is in his views. And the Lord needs to teach him as well as the people of Nineveh. And there it is. There's the symbolism. The Lord gives us commandments, and some of them are very, very tough. Forgiveness is a very tough commandment, especially when you've been abused and someone has caused great pain. And the Lord says, look, your greatest happiness will come by letting go of that. And that natural man in me, there's the rope, there's the resistance. Are you kidding me? I'm going to hold tightly onto this revenge. I'm going to hold tightly onto my expectation that that person pays for what they did. And the Lord is saying, let it go. Your greatest happiness will come if you let it go. And I'm saying, I don't believe you, Lord. And I hold on to revenge and I hold on to anger. And there's the story of Jonah. So Jonah is given a commandment 
And I testify as Joseph Smith. I love the Nancy Rigdon letter. I know it's a little bit controversial because the only copy we have was printed by an enemy of the church. So did he print it exactly as Joseph wrote it, or did he alter it? We don't technically know. But as I've read this letter, I can hear the words of Joseph, and I I believe there's a lot of legitimacy to the Nancy Rigdon letter. But in that letter, Joseph begins with, happiness is the object and design of our existence, and will be the end thereof if we pursue the path that leads to it. And then later on, he says, as God has designed our happiness and the happiness of all his creatures, he never has, he never will institute an ordinance or give a commandment to his people that is not calculated in its very nature to promote that happiness which he has designed and which will not end in the greatest amount of good and glory to those who become the recipients of his law and ordinances. I witness that that is true. As painful as it's been in my life, I witness that it's true, that God has never given a commandment individually to me, collectively to us, that is not calculated in its very nature to promote the greatest amount of happiness we can achieve. So when he tells me to forgive someone, when he tells me to let go of anger and pride and lust, he's telling me this is the path to happiness. But let's all admit that there is a part of us that doesn't believe him. And we want to run the other way. And that's why I love Jonah chapter 2, because when he runs the other way, in chapter 2, verse 2, he ends up in the belly of hell. Now, I know you can look at this two ways. You could say, well, if I don't obey God, then he's going to throw all these horrible things at me, as if God seeks revenge. But we talked about that in the book of Ezekiel. God is not seeking revenge. If I run away from God, I run into the very pain his commandments were helping me avoid. Let me give you an example. In Doctrine and Covenants section 64, where we get the command to forgive everyone, the Lord prefaces it with this in verse 8, my disciples in days of old sought occasion against one another and forgave not one another in their hearts. And for this evil, they were afflicted and sorely chastened. Now, I would say God didn't afflict them and God didn't chasten them. It's not like, oh, you broke my commandment, so I'm going to hurt you. I think it's saying, I gave you a commandment to avoid pain and you disregarded that commandment. Therefore, you fell into the pain I was trying to help you avoid. By not forgiving one another, you were consumed and it hurt you. Not forgiving someone else is a poison that hurts me. So first the person hurt me, and then by not forgiving them, I hurt me. And the Lord is saying, don't hurt yourself again by holding on to grudges. And so Jonah finds himself in the belly of hell. Now, in the belly of hell, we have an opportunity to say, will you now break your heart? Is this the moment you finally will offer the Lord a broken heart and a contrite spirit? And Jonah does. 
in the belly of hell, having to live with the consequences of what he's done, he realizes what I believe is the great realization of all of us. This is the prodigal son coming to himself. This is the moment where we really offer the Lord our best gift. And that is when we say, you know what? The Lord knew what was best. The Lord's commandments really are in my best interest. That living the way he has asked me to live really does bring me the greatest amount of happiness. I trust him now. And you can measure that by the rope. I no longer fight against it. He can lay that rope on his shoulder and I would follow him because I trust him. I trust that his commandments really are in my best interest. So I love what Jonah says in the belly of hell. Verse four, he says, I will look again toward thy holy temple. I will look again to my covenants, to the commandments you have given me, and I will recommit. This is why we partake of the sacrament every single week. It gives us a chance to say, you know what? I've learned a great lesson. Telestial things do not make me happy. Terrestrial things do not make me happy. Why am I holding on to them? The Lord's way is the better way. And that right there is the greatest gift I can give God. And that's the moment the fish vomits him out back onto land. And symbolically, now I start the journey that will make me happy. To me, that's part one of the Jonah story. Now, there's a part two, but that's part one of the Jonah story. And I think I would gather my children or my classes this week, and that's what I would talk about, and then testify to them that God's commandments are calculated in their very nature to bring us the greatest amount of happiness that we can achieve. I like that. This is a message about us and our journey. Now, Bryce talked about how perhaps a Peshat reading of the text is maybe not our best bet. I really do like to look at this text through the lens of remez or hint or allegory and also derash, this idea of seeking or what does this teach me about my relationship to God? And the fourth reading is the sowed reading or the mystical reading or what does this teach me about the temple? And so I want to talk a little bit about chapter one and two from the perspective of a descent versus an ascent and also Jesus. So let's talk about the descent first. Sometimes this is called catabasis, which is the going down, leaving God's presence. And so if you notice in verse three of chapter one, it says that Jonah rose up to flee into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, the construction of that in Hebrew is literally he is going from to the face of Yahweh. And so that doesn't really translate well. And so the best way to translate that is this idea that Jonah is standing in the divine council face to face with God, and he leaves his presence. Typologically or liturgically, that would be the temple. Jonah leaves the temple or he leaves the presence of God. In my mind, I see Jonah as a prophet in the divine council. And he comes down from the council and he goes down to Joppa. And then he pays the fare for a ship. Verse three of chapter one says he went down into the ship. And once again, 
Verse 3 doesn't end without letting you know that he was once in the presence of God or to the face of God, face to face. So then he goes down into the sides of the ship in the fifth verse of chapter 1, and then there's the storm. And the people that are not believers in Yahweh ask questions, and they cast lots and realize, oh my goodness, Jonah is the cause. And Jonah tells them, hey, I'm the cause, and so you guys better throw me into the sea. And so they do. That's in verse 15. And then the fish swallows him up. In verse 17, it says he's in the belly for three days and three nights. And then like Bryce referenced, the belly of hell or the heart of Sheol is where he is in verse 2 of chapter 2. And then he starts quoting poetry. There are so many Psalms in the second chapter of Jonah that Jonah is quoting, and I'm a nerd, and so... In 10 (laughs) verses. There's 10 verses in chapter 2. There's so many, and I'm a nerd, and so I kind of collected some of these, and there's in the show notes, if you want to kind of go down the rabbit hole of all the awesome Psalms he's quoting, and the reason why I think this is significant is I think Jonah is a poet, And he knows the temple. I mean, so many of these Psalms are related to the temple and coming into God's presence. And it's just kind of woven in the text. And if you're someone who loves the Psalms, you can't help but read the second chapter and go, oh my goodness, like there's temple imagery here. And so then he says, like Bryce said, I'm going to look towards the holy temple. He's in the midst of Sheol, but he knows he's going to come back. But yet we have verse five, the waters compassed me about, and I went to the bottom of the mountains, verse six, but then he remembered the Lord. And verse seven of chapter two reminds me of that one verse in the beautiful chiastic structure of Alma 36. If you remember, Alma tells his conversion story a couple times, and when he's surrounded in darkness, he too remembers the Lord, and he says this. Bryce, do you have it? I do. Where Alma says, I remembered also to have heard my father prophesy unto the people concerning the coming of one Jesus Christ, a son of God, to atone for the sins of the world. Now as my mind caught hold upon this thought, I cried within my heart, O Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on me, who am in the gall of bitterness and am encircled about by the everlasting chains of death. There it is. That's Jonah. That really is what we see Jonah experiencing. And when he does this, verse 10 of chapter 2 says that he's taken out or he's vomited out of the fish. Just like Alma says, I could remember my pains no more. Yeah. It's a beautiful image of the Lord transferring him to a different state. So he's vomited out in verse 10, and then he goes to that great city, Nineveh, in, in the third chapter of Jonah. Now, In the writings of Paul, Paul uses this technique of catabasis to show us Jesus. And I'm just going to read Paul's writing here. This is Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Look what he says. Speaking of Jesus, verse 6 says, "...who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation." So here we have the pre-existent Jesus, who is in the council of the gods. He comes to earth... And he made himself of no reputation. It continues. And he took upon him the form of a servant. So he's not only a man of no reputation, but now he's a servant. And he was made in the likeness of men, being found in fashion as a man. He, Jesus, humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so Paul uses catabasis to show us who Jesus is. And Jesus quotes Jonah. So. In Matthew 12, verse 38 through 41, we read this. 
Certain of the scribes and the Pharisees answered and said, Master, we would see a sign from thee. And he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but there shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And that's Greek for Jonah. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. So Jesus uses the story of Jonah to talk about this story as a type that was fulfilled in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So remember, a type is a symbol that looks forward towards a future fulfillment in history. And so that really is important. And so I like to read Jonah through the lens of typology and take it to Jesus. But I also see this image. As Jonah descends from being before the face of Yahweh, and he goes all the way down to the belly of Sheol. I mean, that's it. There's no more lower. You've gone as far as you can go. The rest of Jonah invites us to ask this question, how do I ascend? And to me, the heart of this message is I ascend with love. I see people the way God sees them, and that is going to be agape. That's going to be the New Testament version of charity, what we call charity today. That form of love is the ascent, and I see it in my relationships with my family and the people that I associate with. If I can have that kind of love towards them, that's a beautiful ascent. That's kind of how I see the rest of, of Jonah playing out. Mike, I love that you quote Paul or Saul because Saul was from Tarshish. You see the foil here? Jonah starts out in the presence of God and wants to run to Tarshish. Saul was from Tarshish and wants to get into the presence of God. And that that culminating moment where the, the Savior appears and Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? That moment where Saul is brought into the Savior's presence and then spends the rest of his life preaching is the opposite of Jonah. And Jesus is basically saying, I did both of those. I went from the presence of the Father down to the very lowest pit of hell and came right back to the presence of the Father. And that's why the Savior is who he is. Doctrine and Covenants 88 verse 6, he that ascended up on high and descended below all things in that he comprehended all things and became in that the light of truth. And so that's why Jesus says, that's your sign. Your sign is that I went from the presence of the Father all the way down into the lowest pit of hell and then came back into the presence of the Father. And that's how he became the light of truth. I like that. I love that you mentioned Saul. Now, the rest of the story is kind of pointing to one particular commandment, and that is to not be offended by God's mercy, to embrace and follow the pattern of having mercy. Jonah is offended at God's mercy. Now, this is a subject that's throughout the scriptures. Do you remember the parable of the laborers in the vineyard where some people get hired at 6 a.m. and work all day and the promise was to get a penny? That was fair. And then some people got hired at 5 p.m. They work one hour and when they get paid first, they get a penny. Now, the expectation of the 12-hour laborers is that if the one-hour laborer got a penny, I should get 12 pennies. That would be fair. 
and they got a penny as well, which was fair. But they were livid that the Lord was merciful to someone else. And so this idea of being offended at God's mercy towards someone else is one of the commandments I'm commanded to obey, to let that go, to rejoice in someone's repentance. One of the most terrestrial commandments you'll ever get to is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That is typical of terrestrial people, which is why in the Sermon on the Mount, the Savior says, I need you to go up and beyond that. I invite you to become celestial people and live beyond eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But it is such a terrestrial concept that I will never hurt you, but if you hurt me, I am justified in hurting you, whether I do it or the law does it, but you need to be hurt. And we sometimes don't trust God when he says, you'll be happier if you let it go. And we demand that justice be served. And we're so offended when mercy robs justice. But shouldn't Jesus be able to do his work? Shouldn't my cry for his mercy demand in me that I allow him to grant mercy to someone else. My greatest prayer to God is that he grant me mercy and that he pay the debt to justice so I don't have to. So why then do I demand that other people pay that debt to justice and I get offended when he grants mercy? And the Lord is saying, Bryce, I invite you up into a higher realm Let go. I will handle that. That is between me and them. That's why I love in that parable, he says to the 12-hour workers, if my eye is good, why is yours evil? Don't be offended because my eye is good. There's a better way of living, and that is if you have done me evil, I will not return evil for evil. Now, I know that is a very hard commandment to live, but it is my testimony that you will live happier, better, freer if you loose them from that debt and let the Savior deal with it. I think that really is chapter four. At the end of chapter three, after they repent, the very first verse, Bryce, is what you're talking about, where it says it displeased Jonah and he was very angry. And then he says in verse 3 of chapter 4, I beseech thee my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And then the Lord asks the question you're talking about in verse 4, where he says, Why are you so angry? Doest thou well to be angry? And to me, that's the message. You see, at the end, God asks Jonah a question, and we have to answer it. We have to answer in verse 11 of chapter 4. Should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein more than threescore thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and also so much cattle? Essentially, what he's saying here is, don't these people matter? And we're supposed to answer this. Many scholars look at that verse and say that the Lord is speaking of the innocence in that city that didn't perpetuate violence. But what if it also includes the villains? What if the Lord is saying, I see them differently. 
and I don't have all the answers and I can't make up all the balances in the grand economy of rights and wrongs, but that really is the heart of the word of atonement. The Greek rendition of the word atonement literally means to balance the books. And I'm not the atoning one. Jesus is. And so I turn it over to him and say, he'll balance it. All he asks me to do is to forgive and to try to see people through that lens of love. And so I love the end of the fourth chapter of Jonah, and I love that it asks me to answer the question. And I love the experience he gave Jonah right before that. So Jonah is angry that God didn't destroy Nineveh, that he forgave them because they repented. And so he kind of is sitting in a spot and he's sulking and it's hot and the sun is out and the Lord prepares a gourd and it comes up and it shadows him. And he enjoys the shade of this gourd. But then suddenly a worm comes up and eats the gourd, it kind of kills the gourd. And he's so angry at the worm because the gourd was good. Why did you destroy the gourd? He's angry that the gourd was destroyed. And the whole idea is, Jonah, why do you have pity on the gourd, but you don't have pity on my children? My heart goes out to my children like your heart goes out to the gourd. And so I love that little experience to say, you have compassion on a gourd. I have compassion on my children. And so the Lord is asking, do you value what I value? When the prodigal son's father forgives his son, the older son is upset But the prodigal son's father was rejoicing in repentance. Isn't that really what the older son did wrong? Shouldn't we rejoice in repentance and not be offended by mercy? Yeah. Bryce, what you just said reminds me of this great quote by Joseph Smith, where he talks about how while we're all busy judging each other, the great parent of the universe looks upon the whole of the human family with a fatherly care and paternal regard. And I really think that's the, the core of what we're talking about here. And if I want to go to the kingdom where he resides and not just be with him, but be like him, I have to have that same attribute. I have to look upon human beings with the same care and the same love that the father does. And if they repent, I should rejoice in their repentance. So there's just one aspect of the gospel. I think the book of Jonah is asking us to examine everything that the animal inside me desires. Will you trust that your father knows what's best for you and that his commandments are indeed the path to your greatest happiness? That's the story of Jonah. It's a beautiful story, and I think it's worth taking some time this week. Absolutely. Now we're going to go from Jonah, and now we're going to talk about Micah. And Micah's name means who is like Jehovah. It could be a question there. It says that he's a Moorishite, and that's about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And so that tells us that Micah is from the south. But remember, this is during the time when Israel and Judah are separate. They're not friends. They're different entities. And Micah is going to go to the north, and he's going to preach to these people at the time of Isaiah. So to put it in context, Isaiah spends time in the king's court in the south in Judah, but Micah goes to the north. Micah's message to the north is 
that the Assyrians are going to come and there's going to be some problems. And then he has a lot of messages that are familiar with what many of the, quote, minor prophets talk about. Things about social problems, things about pride, prophecies of coming destruction, and the importance of making things fair. There's some other things in here that are important as well. To me, I really like Micah 4 and 5, those two chapters, because they have a lot of prophecy that have to do with Israel, and there's some temple imagery in here, and there's also some prophecy that relates to the birth of the Messiah. So yes, the house of Israel is going to be scattered, but if you go to the very end of Micah 7, it ends with a message of love and hope. So with that, Bryce, let's talk about some things that we see that are valuable here. What would you start with? Mike, I love chapter 4 because Micah chapter 4 begins with a prophecy of, in the latter days, the Lord will establish his house in the top of the mountains. Now, does that sound familiar? That's exactly Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2 and Micah 4 begin with the exact same prophecy, almost the exact same words. That can't be a coincidence. So either Micah is quoting Isaiah, or Isaiah is quoting Micah, or perhaps both of them are quoting someone else. Just a fun thought here. What if there was a great prophet in the Old Testament that preceded both Micah and Isaiah, whose words were powerful and moving? And both of those prophets quoted this other prophet. I would suggest that perhaps one of the greatest Old Testament prophets is no longer in the Old Testament. He is significantly quoted in the Book of Mormon because they had the brass plates. His name is Zenos. He only exists now in the Book of Mormon. I am fascinated with something that Elder Bruce R. McConkie once said. Elder McConkie said, I do not think I overstate the matter when I say that next to Isaiah himself, who is the prototype pattern and model for all the prophets, there was not a greater prophet in all Israel than Zenos. And our knowledge of his inspired writings is limited to the quotations and paraphrasing summaries found in the Book of Mormon. What a fantastic insight, especially where Micah and Isaiah are quoting almost verbatim, almost word for word, the same thing. Maybe it shows you the influence of prophets that are no longer in our modern-day Old Testament. I raise that simply as kind of a cool little insight about the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon restores prophets who have disappeared from the Old Testament. So Nephi couldn't possibly be quoting Malachi, who wrote long after Lehi left Jerusalem, but both of them mentioned the phrase, calves of the stall, that he will rise with healing in his wings and mentions that phrase, calves of the stall. Now, that can't be a coincidence that Nephi says that and Malachi says that. So maybe both of them were quoting some other prophet that has disappeared from the Old Testament. So just a cool insight that I love from Micah that might hint at the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon, that there really were powerful, significant Old Testament prophets like Zenos and Zenic. 
that no longer exist in our modern-day Old Testament. So that's one fun insight you're going to find in the book of Micah. Now, going back to that prophecy, we saw this in Isaiah chapter 2. We're going to see it again. It is a prophecy of our day, that in the last days shall come to pass that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above all the hills, and the people shall flow into it. And many nations shall come and say, Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for the law shall go forth out of Zion. Do you see that vision? So many prophets, Micah sees the same thing, that there is in the latter days a house of God out of which comes his word, and we learn his ways and to walk in his paths. And when we do that, when the, if the world would listen, verse 3, we would all beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks. Nations would not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. We talked a lot about that in Daniel with the stone cut out of the mountain without hands, that the way to end war is to live the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beautiful repetition, Micah 4, Isaiah 2. I really like Micah 4, Bryce. I really like that Jesus quotes it in 3 Nephi. And what I'm about to address, I believe we talked about in the podcast where we covered 3 Nephi 20, but I still want to talk about it here. So here it is. If you look at the end of Micah 4, there's a beautiful passage that the Savior quotes to the Nephites, starting in verse 10. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shalt thou go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the field, and thou shalt go even to Babylon. There thou shalt be delivered. There the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. Now also many nations are gathered against thee that say, Let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion." But they know not the thoughts of the Lord, neither understand they his counsel. For he shall gather them as the sheaves into the floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn iron, I will make thy hooves brass, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain unto the Lord, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth." Essentially, what he's saying here is they are going to have difficulty. Verse 10 talks about this. They will go into Babylon, but then the Lord says, there are also many nations gathered against thee. I think historically, that's Assyria. But I think Micah is also prophesying of the Babylonian captivity. But Babylon can be a metaphor for the world. So there's lots of ways to read this. But in verse 12, it says that he, meaning the Lord, will gather them, meaning Israel, as sheaves into the Goran. The Goran is the Hebrew word for the threshing floor. It's translated as floor in the King James. But what we're talking about is literally the harvest. The sheaves are brought to the Goran or the threshing floor, which was a circular stone where everyone brought their sheaves and then they were able to gather them and thresh them and bring out the seeds. And the seeds is a really big deal when it comes to the idea of temple. You see, in the ancient Near East, at the fall festival, when they brought in their harvest, they would 
gather the sheaves and they would get the seeds. And that was when they would celebrate the new year. That's when they would celebrate their connection with God. And from an Israelite perspective, they would have the drama of the temple at the threshing floor. And also, so did other cultures. The Greeks did as well. Moshe Aronov wrote a great paper on this. We also read that the threshing floor of Aronah was purchased by David. We read about this in the Samuel narrative. And he purchases this, and we actually put a map in the show notes so you can see where historians conceptualize where that threshing floor was. It was above the city of David. And that threshing floor, in tradition, that threshing floor was the top of Mount Moriah. It was the place where David built the altar to God, but Mount Moriah was also the place where Abraham offered up Isaac and God came, sent his angel, and the angel intervened. This is a holy space. This is the place according to tradition, where Abraham does this, and the space today where the Temple Mount exists. And it was the Goran. It was the threshing floor. And so the idea, when the Savior quotes this in verse 18 of chapter 20 of 3 Nephi, look what the Savior says. I will gather my people together as a man gathers his sheaves into the floor, and I will make my people with whom the Father has covenanted, yea, I will make thy horn iron, and I will make thy hooves brass, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain unto the Lord, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. Behold, I am he who has done it. And it shall come to pass, saith the Father, that the sword of my justice shall hang over them at that day, except they repent. I think one of the things we can see here is that the Savior is telling the people in America, when he's talking to them in 3 Nephi 20, that I am the deliverer and I'm going to gather my seeds. And to me, this is we're coming into the temple. We're coming into God's presence. But the Lord also says, all the powers of the world, we don't need to be too concerned with. In other words, he's saying, look at me, follow me. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take you home. And so I see this to me as kind of a cosmic covenant in, in, the, in the idea that is that I do not need to get too caught up in the powers that be. I focus on Christ and Christ will save my family. Now, as a history nerd, I love Moshe Aronov's paper. He wrote this paper called The Biblical Threshing Floor in the Light of the Ancient Near Eastern Evidence, Evolution of an Institution. And one of the things he says is that the in the process of time, theater became secularized, utilizing non-sacred scripts directed towards entertainment of the masses. But originally what it was theater was the temple. It was holiness. And it was a way that we could see in a dramatic fashion, the hero's journey or Israel's journey or covenant sons and daughters of God, their journey to God's presence. And so today when I see movies, like when I watch, for example, The Little Mermaid, the story of Ariel finally being redeemed by the power of her father and the overcoming of the sea witch and, you know, leaving through that, this journey of chaos and then finally coming to the throne that's the message of the great journey. And all the ancient cultures are doing this, and they're doing this at the threshing floor. So I think it's important. And it's kind of written in code. I mean, you read verse 12, and you're like, okay, yada, 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 so what? They're gathering sheaves into the floor. But that is really significant when you realize the threshing floor is the Holy of Holies, and God wants to put you there. And then all this stuff about your horn iron and your hoofs brass, to me, I read that in Micah 4.13 to mean God's going to make you strong. 
God's going to bring you into his presence. That's a resurrection motif. So I think that's really beautiful. Yeah. That leads us to chapter 5, which has two incredible prophecies. One prophecy of the coming of the Messiah into the world to be born, and the other one is the coming of the Messiah into the world at the second coming, and the people that will prepare for that. So, you'll remember that when the wise men went to Herod to say, hey, where is it written? We're, we're looking for the Messiah. We've seen his star. We've seen his sign. We want to find him. Herod asked for them to search the scriptures. Where in the scriptures does it say the Messiah would be born? And they quote him, Micah chapter 5, which says in verse 2, But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. That was the prophecy of where Jesus would be born. And so they quote Micah 5, and that's how Herod knows that he was born in Bethlehem and tells the wise men, go to Bethlehem. So there's a very significant prophecy of Jesus coming into the world. But then we get to Micah 5, 8. And this is a significant prophecy. This prophecy is quoted throughout the Restoration. And the prophecy is that the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people as dew from the Lord, as the showers upon the grass. And then he gets very specific. The remnant that survives the apostasy, the remnant of Jacob, shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many people as a lion among the beasts of the forest, as a young lion among the flocks of the sheep, who, if he goeth through, both treadeth down and teareth in pieces, and none shall deliver. Now, that's kind of a harsh image, but the idea here is that Israel in the latter days is a lion, and that when Israel finally understands who she is, and she rises up, no one can stop her. Yeah. Let me give the references where Micah 5 8 is quoted. It's quoted in 3 Nephi 16, 14, and 15, 3 Nephi 20, 15, and 16, 3 Nephi 21, 12, and then Mormon also quotes it. If you go to Mormon 524, and then it's alluded to in Alma 14, 29, where it says, they fled even as two goats flee from two lions. So, okay, if you take Alma 14 off the table and say, okay, the illusion doesn't count, This is still quoted by Jesus three times to the Nephites and by Mormon. And so the Book of Mormon has four clear quotations of this. So I think this is worth at least examining. Yes. This Micah 5 prophecy, I believe, is at the heart of Joseph Smith's prophecy where he says, no unhallowed hand can stop the work from progressing. Persecutions may rage, mobs may combine, armies may assemble, calumny may defame, but the truth of God will go forth boldly, nobly, and independent, till it has penetrated every continent, visited every clime, swept every country, and sounded in every ear, till the purposes of God shall be accomplished, and the great Jehovah shall say, the work is done." It's that Micah 5 image that says the restoration is going to be triumphant. We will not fall into another apostasy. It's the idea of Jesus being victorious and coming back as a lion among sheep and among other predators. But the lion is going to be triumphant. Also, section 45, where the Lord's like, everybody's going to be killing each other, but you, Zion, you're going to be at peace. Yeah. 
Zion won't be. That's the lion among the other nations, the lion among the beasts of the field. The lion is going to be triumphant over all the enemies who are trying to destroy it. It was the victory of the Jews returning to Babylon and building their temple in spite of all the opposition that fought against them. It's the victory of Christ over death. It's the victory of Christ in our day in preparation for his coming. We kind of see it in bits and pieces scattered throughout the scriptures. There's this cool little reference here. So the context of this is Alma and Amulek have been in prison, and they come out of prison. We read in verse 27 that the earth shook mightily and the walls of the prison were rent in twain. And then it says in verse 28 that Alma and Amulek came out of the prison and they weren't hurt, and then they came straightway forth into the city. And then the end of the chapter in verse 29 says that they were struck with great fear, meaning the enemies of Alma and Amulek. And they fled from the presence of Alma and Amulek, even as a goat fleeth with her young from two lions. And thus did they flee from the presence of Alma and Amulek. And my take on that verse is Mormon is literally channeling Micah 5.8. Mormon sees that image, and I think his prophetic lens is lit. And he says, oh my goodness, Alma and Amulek are the fulfillment of that. There are these almost cosmic divine beings because they're filled with the presence of God or his spirit. They come out of the earth and the earth is rent and they have this power. But we see it in other places too. You see it so many times in the Book of Mormon. You see it in Nephi before his brethren, touch me not. For the Lord will protect you. You see it in Abinadi before the priests of Noah. Touch me not, for I haven't delivered my message. That is a lion among the sheep who will not be stopped. We see it in Samuel the Lamanite up on that wall who could not be harmed by their arrows. We see it in the stripling warriors who should have been slaughtered in the battle, but they weren't. This is the Micah 5 prophecy. It's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They don't get burned. Or Daniel in the lion's den, he doesn't get eaten. In other words... God's with them, and it's almost like a resurrection motif. And so, to me, the best image of this is Jesus when he comes to the Nephites. And I think that's why it's quoted three times. Jesus descends from heaven, and around the Nephites are all this destruction. All these cities are destroyed. They're trying to rebuild the city. It's been about a year since the destruction. And Jesus quotes it three times, and he says, guys, this is going to be you. And here I am as the example. He's this resurrected, glorified being. He shows them his hands and he says, this is your destiny. This is what you will attain. And I really think that's why he quotes it so much. And I think the Book of Mormon is asking us as Latter-day Saints to take Micah 5.8 seriously as a future reality. Think about that. Even though they pounded nails into his hands, even though they spit on him and they put a crown of thorns on his head, he rose in glorious power. And even though they murdered Joseph Smith, and even though they took away our lands in Jackson County, and even though today people say horrible things about prophets, seers, and revelators, you can persecute the church, but it is a lion that will rise up among the beasts of the field and the sheep, and it will claim its place. You are part of something amazing. Join it. Throw yourself into it with all your heart, because this work will triumph. I think of Joseph Smith's prophecy, well might man hold forth his puny hand and try to stop the Missouri River as to stop God from pouring out upon the saints the glories of the restoration. You are part of something fantastic. 
something glorious, something that's been prophesied for thousands of years. Catch that vision and see it as you read Micah 5 and understand. And then go to the very last two verses of Micah. Yeah, this is the hope. Micah 7 verse 16, the nations shall see and be confounded at all their might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth, their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of thee. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. So I want to remind you of that prophecy of Abraham, the covenant of Abraham. It was the peas of Abraham, protection, priesthood, posterity, a place, power. Those are the mercies of Abraham, that he will protect us. He will keep us safe. He will give us all of the blessings of the priesthood, including eternal marriage and temple covenants. He will give us a place to call home, a place in Zion. He will bless us with posterity that we can't even number eternally. He will bless us with power. But do you remember what the Lord asked of Abraham? Through thee shall all the nations of the earth know my name. You need to make his name known in all the land, in all the strange places. You need to bless the families of the earth with three things. And here's how we become part of this great movement. Bless the families of the earth with the gospel, with salvation, and with eternal life. That's from Abraham chapter 2, verse 11. The very essence of what we're asked to do so that we receive the mercies of Abraham, the blessings of Abraham. They are alive and well. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the restored gospel of Christ on earth today. We have the keys of the kingdom again on earth, and they are rolling forth. Be part of that. The church is a lion that will not be stopped, but we need you. We need your voice. We need your example. We need you. Join the cause and be part of the rolling forth of the stone cut out of the mountains without hands. The prophecy is that that stone will roll and fill the earth until he comes. What a beautiful, wonderful time to be alive. Are they taking shots at the kingdom? They are. Do people on social media attack truth and leaders and key holders? They do. But this kingdom will roll forth. We are the prophecy of Micah 5. And that is our witness to you and our invitation to be part of something amazing. And come help the stone roll forward. And with that, we thank you for listening. We will see you next week when we cover Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 
The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.